0: You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of Genesis. Would you turn with me this evening to Genesis chapter 13 as we continue looking at the story of Abraham and his life of faith and some of the challenges that he faced? And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this chapter together? Genesis chapter 13, we're gonna read the chapter in its entirety. It begins this way. It says So Abram went from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. And Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And from the Negev he went from place to place until he came to the place where Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanite and the Perizzite were also living in the land at that time, and so Abram said to Lot, "'Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine.' for we are brothers, is not the whole land before you? Let's part company, and if you go to the left, I'll go to the right, and if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, and set out towards the east. The two men parted company, and Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent near Sodom. And now the men of Sodom were wicked, and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, "'Lift up your eyes from where you are, and look north, east, south, and west,' All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. And so Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Let's begin with a prayer. Father, I ask as we continue our study through this great book of Genesis that you would assist us in not only understanding the story and its context, but we'd understand really also the personal subtext that you have in it for every one of us. I ask God that your Holy Spirit would just speak prophetically to each of us regarding the challenges that we are confronting in our own lives even now. That Lord, we might know that your word is a living word that it is a two-headed sword that can really speak to the deepest, most secret places of our life, and that you can assure us by that presence, Lord, of your love and your grace and your wisdom and your guiding hand upon our lives, Lord, that we might not feel that we're just wandering, but that we're being led and directed. We pray for that wisdom, that grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The story of Abraham obviously is one of faith. I'm, that's not telling you anything you don't already know. But it's a faith that manifests itself not only in decisions and deeds that he had to perform, but we see, really see that faith really kind of focused very specifically on his traveling. He had a very migratory life, if you will, so that the narrative, as we talked about last week, of his life is peppered with action verbs, things like he went, he traveled, he journeyed, he, he moved on to this place and that place. And so, as we discussed last week, he's referred to as having a nomadic lifestyle But the idea of being a nomad means you just simply wander from place to place without any real sense of direction or purpose. It's like many people, even in our world today, live in a sense nomadic lives because they're always looking for the answer to life's purpose or fulfillment over the next horizon. They're constantly moving from thing to thing, from relationship to relationship, or in my case, from one new form of technology to another. So that you find that this is kind of a restlessness that is common in people's souls. But in their day, restless people did what uh, Abraham did. You just moved from place to place, looking for that place that would be really the summation of everything that you wanted to experience, what they call in Latin the sumum bono, the, the perfect sum of life, of the good life. Yet when we look at his nomadism, it's not like that kind of wandering, there's a kind of a fixed feature to his life that essentially he lived within certain well-defined boundaries. That there was a place, in other words, where he knew he was supposed to be and he discovered by his own mistakes that there were some places he wasn't supposed to be. It's kind of like discovering in yourself where God has gifted you personally that I know when I was early in my Christian life, I could kind of fantasize all these different ways in which God could use me, and every new thing was exciting. You know, you think, well, because I'm learning how to share my faith, maybe God has called me to be an evangelist, because, you know, Billy Graham isn't gonna live forever. And then you realize that he is gonna live forever, and you're, (laughs) you're not that good of an evangelist, and so you began looking for different things. When I first went into ministry, believe it or not, I played music. And the the church of God has been thankful since the day I quit. You know, there's sometimes you write music and and, and you start off by saying, you know, this is a song the Lord gave me, and then people say, don't blame that on God. But I realized at some point as I began to find that God was using me to teach the Bible that I really wasn't gifted enough to do both music and the word. I needed to decide where I was gonna focus. And as I prayed through it, I realized there are certain areas where God had graced my life. And that's one of the biggest challenges in the Christian life is really kind of discovering where is the grace of God most perfectly expressed in your life because we are a body of believers and it says that we each have giftings or graces individually divided amongst us so that we're not all the same. We all have a part to play. And as you walk in that grace that God has given you, that blesses everybody else because you're fulfilling part of the entire purpose of the body of Christ and not just simply living singularly within yourself. So that what I'm basically implying here is that what we find in Abraham's life is he came to that kind of discovery in the same way that you and I do it, kind of through the process of elimination. I remember in one ministry I was in, they had, didn't really have any place to fit me in that season, and so they asked me to work in the accounting office. And I sat in an office eight hours a day, punching on a a, a, a 10 key, adding up figures in long columns, and you know, you begin to realize very quickly that first, this is horribly exhausting because you don't enjoy it, and secondly, you hope nobody ever checks the figures because I never could get those columns to ever match up. Eventually, I would just kind of put the figures t- so that they were the same thing and then move on to the next one because I just knew it wasn't where I belonged. But that's the kind of thing, you by the process of elimination, you try things, and I have people say, well, how do you discover where your gifts are? Well, some people have what we call these spiritual gift inventories that you can take, and I found that I could not only take them, but I could also fake them. I, they were so obvious, I could figure out what I wanted to be, and I know how to, knew how to answer the questions. It's the same way I passed my driving test. And so you can you, you to discover that you can kind of work away in those in those kind of things, but I found that the real way of discovering where God has gifted you is just simply to start trying things, to start making yourself available. Because as my pastor used to always say, God isn't as interested in your ability as he is in your availability. Are you available to what God has? And in that process, there's kind of an elimination where you realize that that's not an area that I'm really gifted in, but when I do this, I feel the grace of God. And what the grace of God feels like is energy. That, you know, it's, it's like teaching the Bible, you never have to prompt me to start talking about it, you just have to prompt me to stop, that's why they have a timer in back. But you know, like Mark says, I, you know, I'm, I'm teaching off an iPad, I, this is the first time I've done this, and so I hope it doesn't betray me. They even gave me printed notes just in case it failed, but anyway... But the whole system is, he, says, he told me, he says, well, it's gonna be hard for us to know when you're quitting because whenever you turn your notes over, you always go like this, and we know that you're gonna be done in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> but it's not hard for me to do that because I feel his grace. It's like Eric Little said when he, when he would race, that he felt God's pleasure. And when you're doing the thing that God has graced you in, you feel his pleasure inside. And it's, there's nothing more pleasurable than feeling the pleasure of God in the area in which He graced you. And that's why there's such amazing diversity because we're all graced in the same thing, our different ways. I remember guys saying to me, are you always this enthusiastic when you teach? And I thought, I don't even know what you're referring to. Am I excited about doing this? Yes, because I realize after many messages, you may not allow me to do it again. So the point is that you take it seriously, and you love it, and you get energized by it. And what I'm suggesting again is that Abraham came through the process of elimination by making all good choices, but also making bad choices. He began to find what were the boundaries in which he was going to live and what, what were those defined. For him, they had very specific geographical aspects to him along with other behavioral aspects. But as we talked about last week in verse 10 of chapter 12 that we read how Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because there was a famine in the land. And I refer to this as a diversion, a really a step of unbelief because later on in verse 12, we read tonight that Abram lived in the land of Canaan. God had called him to go to Canaan, to live in Canaan, and stay in Canaan. And I think as we saw last week that his going into Egypt was not an act of faith, but rather a response to fear, which produced unbelief. And unbelief always leads to human energy trying to figure out how to make things work. So that the reason why God wanted him in Canaan, because that was the place that God had promised to him. And not just to him, but to his heirs forever, as far as worldly time continues. His heirs have been granted that piece of real estate, and that's the reason why they're even there today. But keep in mind that even though this was the right choice it wasn't the most comfortable choice for him to make because as the writer of Hebrews later on says in chapter 11, verse nine, he said, uh, he was like a stranger in a foreign country. So, I mean, this is a dynamic. God has promised that his heirs will live in the land of Canaan, and yet the entire time he's there, he's like a stranger living in somebody else's property. And so, as as a consequence, he had to deal with the discomfort of being placed in a situation where he felt constantly displaced. Now I say that because so many times people get obsessed with being comfortable in their current situation. And we often make decisions saying, well I'm not comfortable with the way things are right now, so it must be God's will for me to move on. And I would just suggest to you that being comfortable is a really wonderful thing, but being under, uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean you're not where you're supposed to be. Because what we have to understand is that Abraham had to deal with two dynamics that he couldn't control, that God had given to him a land that was already occupied by other people. It says the Canaanites were also living at the land in the time at that time. So he had other people who were occupying territory that he know was promised to him and his heirs in the future. And secondly, later on, we'll find that God tells him, you can take it after 430 years. He says four generations will pass. So from the time that Abram comes into the land until finally his heirs inhabit the land of Canaan is a period of 430 years. And at that time, God says, you'll know it's the right time because he said the sins, of the Amorites will have reached its full measure. It's interesting because that that sin refers to literally the word that's used there in the original means a a fervent perversity and depravity and iniquity. In other words, it'll reach such a level that there will be no more evil for them to explore. Now I know that sounds strange to us because most of us hopefully are so uh, repelled by evil in our own lives and the world around us that we can't imagine what it would be to be totally immersed in a kind of evil that pervades everything, the kind of evil that God destroyed the earth through the flood because of. Because he said man's constant thinking was wicked and evil and depraved. And yet God said Canaan will become like that. The people living there will become like that. Now although in his time that iniquity hadn't reached what he calls his full measure, It was easy for him to see by looking around him where this was going. In fact, it says in verse 13 of our reading tonight, the men of Sodom were unusually wicked and were flagrantly sinning against the Lord. That's kind of my emendation, but basically that they're unusually wicked. I mean, it was a kind of level of wickedness that he hadn't have thought of. I, I wonder sometimes how young people deal with the world that we live in today because Today, I I find that kids, even in grammar school, are aware of sinful behavior that I didn't even know existed when I was in college. And you just begin to realize, how in the world do they they deal with that? And the sad thing is they kind of become immune to it. They don't, they're not shocked. In fact, they're beginning to be uh, conditioned to accept it as being normal. In fact, the state of California is just passed a, a law that requires children to be taught these things as normal alternatives to their lifestyle and gender and sexual preferences, preferences beginning in grade school. So we, we find it's a very different world, but yet what that's going to do, the earlier you start down that pathway, the further you have the opportunity to go in the development of those sinful behaviors. Today this region that we find that Lot settles in looks a lot more like the surface of the moon than it does someplace you'd want to live. Uh, in fact, when it's referred to as the Garden of God, having been to this area many times, it's a little hard for me to even imagine how it could have been a verdant uh, green area with crops and fields and flocks and so forth that it's basically a pretty lifeless place because it's so incredibly dry. There's so little moisture that ever comes to the ground. Every time it rains or snows, sometimes it snows in the Dead Sea, the next morning it's covered with wildflowers because they blossom immediately, but then they wither and die away, and it may be another 10 years before they get another rainfall. So it's kind of an unusual experience to see this carpet of, of flowers that can rise up. But according to archaeologists, 4,000 years ago, this was a verdant area. In fact, even though today very little habitation exists on the Dead Sea, I mean, I would doubt that that region has more, more than 1,000 a, a or more people living in various little settlements around there. But we're told that there was an extremely large population, and we know that because of the discovery of an estimated 20,000 tombs that they said held the bodies of approximately a half a million people. I mean, it's incomprehensible to my mind, yet these holes that we find are underground tombs that they would dig in the ground and they would bury their dead are literally filled with the remains of million, half a million people at least, three million pieces of pottery that were placed there as offerings to the dead relatives. So how was this life possible? Well. There's a thing, the Arab term is a wadi, and what a wadi is are seasonal rivers. That when it rains in the mountains, the water gathers very quickly because the soil is so difficult. In fact, just a, a month ago, there were 12 Israeli schoolchildren who were killed in a flash flood in this area. What you see here in this picture, that cut in the ground between the mountains, is a wadi, and there are times of the year when it rains that the water flows from every direction. It doesn't so- sink into the soil, and suddenly it turns into a rushing torrent, like you see in the next slide, that actually uh, literally walls of water can come rolling off the hills. sometimes as many as 20 feet high. I've been there on occasions where we've gone down to that sea and found the road and the bridge and everything connecting it has all been washed out, and we have to find an alternative alternative route around the barrier. But essentially what they discovered in the desert lands was that if you could gather the water from 20 acres and channel it into catchments and cisterns, you would have enough water to be able to irrigate an entire acre of land for an entire year. So that even though it isn't naturally a wetland, it's an area that really enables them to conserve the resources that they have. As a consequence of this and some other things, these cities that are listed here, the cities of the plains, and they're essentially the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and Adma and Zeboim, known to us more colloquially as just simply Sodom and Gomorrah. But they were very wealthy cities because they possessed two very unique geographical uh, advantages. The first one was they had natural resources that were not available in any other part of the ancient world. The first one was salt. Now today we don't think much about salt, but in the ancient world it was an extremely valuable commodity. And you see these blocks of salt in this picture. I mean, I literally have it in my office, I have it home, big chunks of this stuff that I just reached down into the Dead Sea and pulled off the bottom because it's just, I mean it's pretty salty. There's salt everywhere. That's why you can't sink. There's so many, it's 37% dissolved minerals, and so when you swim in it, you float, you can't sink. And of course, you don't want to dive because you get in your eyes and you wish you were dead. But Salt was a valuable commodity. It was used for seasoning, but it was used also for preserving things. When you don't have refrigeration, you can put something in salt, and it will dehydrate it and keep it from rotting, and it keeps the bacteria from growing. Even salt that could be put on a wound can work as a putative to remove the bacteria or keep it from spreading and becoming infected by it. In fact, the word we have for salary comes from the Romans, which means salt. And the Romans basically gave chunks of salt to their soldiers many times when it was available as payment for their services because it was often more valuable than that weight in gold and silver that they might pay them with. But the other thing was asphalt. And when we read later on about the, the kings being defeated because they got, got trapped in the salt pits, well, you have this, these pieces of what's called bitumen or asphalt. It's in a solid rocky form as it bubbles up to the surface of the lake, but that can be boiled down. And it was used for a lot of important things. One is you know, obviously treating wounds but also it was something that you could use to seal a boat or to uh, use it for medicinal purposes and also to embalm the mummies in Egypt. So the Egyptians were always looking for as much of this asphalt as they could get their hands on. So in a sense, it's like finding a, you know, an oil, oil under your property or finding a gold mine in your property or a diamond mine. These were resources that people paid huge amounts of money for, and as a result, they became very wealthy. Later on, Ezekiel will tell us that the real downfall of Sodom was their prosperity. They had abundance of bread, he says, and they had a lot of free time. And, you know, the old saying, as my mother used to say to me, the, an idle hand is a devil's workshop, so get out there and pull some more weeds. You know, it, it's a, there's, a, there's a certain truth to it, because idle time can give you the chance to be, uh, to discover and to study and to grow in all sorts of ways, but it also can be a way that you can improve your skill in the dark arts as well. But the second thing, which is surprising to most people, is that these cities were located on a major trade route. It was called the King's Highway. Essentially, it ran all the way from India through Arabia up north past these cities of the Dead Sea and up to the land of Mesopotamia and over to Egypt. In other words, this was a route in which they found spices like pepper and nard and cinnamon. They found silk and precious gems and cloth and gold. All these were trade goods which were moved back and forth through these cities. And that became a source of great wealth and prosperity as well. And this again was where the, the five cities of the plains were located in this area that goes up and down along the, the Dead Sea region. You see it particularly down here to the south where uh, some excavations have actually been done and found some fascinating things. But more to the story at hand here is that chapter 12 ends with Abraham being, I would say, not only being enriched but also being humiliated because it doesn't specifically say that, but the truth of the matter is, Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt, you know, and, and it may be hard for us to think about, but this fact is that his, the incident with Sarahi, his wife, uh, was uh, really a, a very, uh, a thing that really caused a conflict between Abraham and he's really evicted from the land of Egypt as a consequence But it's also interesting that the ancient historian Flavius Josephus tells us that the effect that Abraham and the source of his great riches wasn't simply the taking of his wife and his sister, half-sister, as Pharaoh's wife, but it was what he brought and delivered to the Egyptians. In fact, he writes the following, that Abram communicated to them arithmetic and delivered to them the science of astronomy. For before Abram came into Egypt, they were unacquainted with these parts of learning for the science that came from the Chaldeans into Egypt. What we know through archeological studies is the land of Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees, is where written language began. We know that that's where the early studies of mathematics and science, and we have a lot of uh, material evidence to support the fact that they were very astute and very learned and very informed. It's interesting because there's an interesting coincidence in history that the historians tell us at the time that Abraham goes there, there's a, quote, a new burst of astronomical and mathematical knowledge. And one of the places it shows up is that the earliest pyramids we know about, dating back to about 4,000 BC, were really amazing structures, but they weren't very square or aligned properly. They had... They lack the ability to make exacting geometric geometric measurements, and as a result, some of them just simply collapsed. We see series of, of uh, pyramids being adjusted to make up for miscalculations until we get to the time of Khufu, and then suddenly everything is in a poor perfect northwest, southwest, southeast alignment. The angles are perfect and so forth, and it's something that happens rather rat- rapidly and uh, without really kind of underlying evidence. So that Joseph, uh, Josephus, who had no way of knowing about or, speaks about Abram being the one who brought that knowledge and that information to the Egyptians. So it's kind of an interesting uh, parallel. That may in fact have been the source of his great wealth and his prosperity. Yet Having said that, I I believe that Abram's foray into Egypt was, as I stated before, an act of fear and unbelief and not one of faith. And I think it's evidenced by his own choices and behavior while we're there. In fact, I think the text literally emphasizes that when it goes from, again, chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, Abram went down to Egypt, and then chapter 13 opens, Abram went up from Egypt. And in fact, when he goes, when he leaves Egypt, he begins to do things that he had done before but had failed to do when he was in Egypt. It said he went on his journeys to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, to the place of the altar, and he began to worship God once again. So Abram goes to Egypt. He builds no altars. He isn't journeying. He settles into the land until he's forcibly kicked out. You know, there are times in our life where we end up being evicted from something, and we think that's the end of the world. We lose a job. Uh, we, we find ourselves on the outside of some situation, and we kind of go in in a panic. And one of the things that I've learned is there's always a reason for every season in your life. It may not be reasonable to you from your Intellectual perspective or your own reasoning, but God always has a reason for the season that you're in right now. Now, my preference is that every season be a bountiful, joyful, fruitful, fun season in my life. I think having fun is the cat's meow. Uh, you know, that's, that's especially if, if you're eating a cat filet, but it's, I, I, I love those good seasons and I, I know I'm unique in that because I know you guys love suffering. And I I respect that. But I just want to let you know, I really love being in those good seasons. And it's easy to sit back and say, isn't God good and isn't he wonderful? But in those seasons where Abraham is being humiliated and then being evicted out of the land because he's acted like a jerk, to be quite honest, a jerk to his wife, a jerk to Pharaoh, put other people in peril by his decisions and brought harm to them. I mean, there's nothing commendable about Abraham being in Egypt. And yet he comes out of that, and what does he do? It says he goes back to do the things that he did in the beginning. Sometimes what we need to do is remember from where we came. You know, when we get saved, we're all excited about Jesus, and that's all we can talk about. We want to read our Bibles. We want to go to church. We want to hang out with other Christians. And, you know, we just love this kind of experience of being part of the body of Christ and are anxious for what God has next. And then we go through some hard times. We go through trials. We discover that other Christians are still people, even though they're saved. They didn't become angelic impersonators after their conversion and we begin to struggle with all those things. We go through some times where we're asking God to do something for us and he is not responding in the appropriate time frames that I've created for him. And then we begin to kind of lose our ardor, lose our passion. That we're not quite as excited about it. People saying, "How you doing?" Well, I'm hanging on, bro nobody knows the troubles. And we go into this kind of mode of feeling tremendously sorry for ourselves because we have a season that's not fun. I've learned that anything God does to humble me helps me. And anything God ever does to hurt me heals me. And it's the most counterintuitive thing to say to somebody, I'm just telling you, that's the reality. There's always a reason for whatever season God has in you right now. So on one hand, we look at Abraham, was it God's perfect will for him to go into Egypt? I don't think so. I believe that God wanted to show him that he could still take care of him even though the whole land was going through a time of desperation and famine. But God has a permissive will as well, we often say, that he permits us to do it. How else do I learn obedience by without having gone through seasons of disobedience? John Calvin put it very simply, he said, sin is its own reward. And when you disobey God, you find out soon enough how that works out and why that's not a good idea. And it's that experience, the pain of having rebelled against or disobeyed or disregarded God, however, whatever degree to which is your guilt and shame. But when you go through that, you come out of it on the other side and say, you know, I want to just go back and renew my faith. I want to go back to where I once was. And that's why in the Revelation, Jesus says to one of the churches, remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you once were and when you were excited about walking with God and you lost sight of the pattern. And that's why I think when we see Abraham in chapter 13, he's a changed man from the man we ran into in chapter 12. The sum effect was that he had learned an invaluable lesson. He understood who God had made him to be, what God had called him to do, that he understood that he needed to remain planted where God had placed him, regardless of external circumstances. Because I guarantee you, when you put your hand to the plow, Jesus said, don't look back. Well, part of the obvious illustration is it's impossible to plow a straight line when you're looking behind you. But at the same time, it's impossible to finish the task if you don't fix your eyes on the prize of the high calling. And that's the big challenge. It's easy to get distracted, to get caught up in some shiny, sparkly thing that's out there and lose your attention. You know, I I hate eating in restaurants that have televisions. Because I was a kid who grew up watching television and there's this thing naturally in me that just wants to go to the television, no matter who I'm talking to, you know. It's like I could stay home and do that. But the simple fact is that I realize that I can easily be distracted by just little things that pop up and say, what is that? What is that? You know, sometimes I feel like I have the the concentration of a fruit fly. But the simple fact is that in the face of adversity, we wanna run away from that. We wanna avoid troubles. But what happens is when you run, you find that you end up someplace and it's never a place that you actually want to be, that where you want to be is to stick it out and stay tough so that God can reveal to you through your patience that he is greater than the circumstance that you're confronting in your life. That's an invaluable lesson. I mean, think about Moses coming to the Red Sea and suddenly, you know, God's telling him, you know, well, this is where I brought you. And he's looking around trying to figure out what's up next when suddenly the chariots of Pharaoh are racing across the desert. He can feel the rumble of their their hooves and their wheels. He can see the dust clouds rising on the horizon. And we know today that that a a, a hundred chariots in a battle of the ancient world could kill 10,000 men in less than an hour. They were efficient killing machines when they were coming against ground troops. And so as a result, this was really the worst thing that could happen to you. It's like seeing a a whole platoon of tanks coming your direction and you got a slingshot. You realize that you're not going to survive this encounter. And it's at those moments where God says to us what he said to Moses. Stand still and see what I'm going to do. And there's times when you and I are gonna go through difficult times and the thing we need more than anything else is just to continue to do, to continue to pray, to continue to stay in his word, to continue serving in wherever God has put you and not run from something because if you do, you're gonna find yourself having to come back and learn the same lessons over again and over again. In fact, that's often the case. God will permit you to run if that's what you determined to do but you'll find that that's not his perfect will for your life. Well, I say all this because as we read on, one of the things we discover is that this is a lesson that Lot didn't learn. Abram learns it, but Lot didn't. You see, what I really see is once Lot had gone to Egypt, he liked what he found there far more than he liked what he found in Canaan which I think is the reason why it says that there, a quarreling arose between Abram's herdmen and the herdsmen of Lot. You see, when you're conflicted, then you're not content. And when you're conflicted about what you want with your life, you're going to find reasons to find fault with other people. Here's the amazing thing. Everything Lot had had been given to him by Abram. Everything that had come to him had come to him because of his association. But now he wants to break off that association. Instead of being submitted to Abraham, he's in conflict with Abraham. So that amazingly, when, when Abraham comes to him and said, let's not fight. We're brothers. Let's, let's settle this amicably. If we can't live together, then you go and choose the place where you're going to go, and I'll go in the opposite direction. What is amazing to me is that Abram is a chieftain of a, of a large tribe of people. We're told later on he has over 300 warriors that are part of his retinue. He could have simply said, we're not getting along, you go that way and I'm gonna stay here and make this my home. But instead he defers and he humbles himself in an effort to end the conflict and it's amazing. One of the things that Solomon said, there, without pride there's no contention. So how do you deal with contention? by humbling yourself, by admitting, hey, it's, it's my fault. What can I do to make it right? How can we resolve this? What most of us want to do is kind of mark off our territory, take our stand and fight for what's ours and not let anybody get anything that belongs to ours. Those are my Cheerios and I'll kill you if you touch them. And the result is that we simply stimulate the conflict and it gets worse and worse and worse. And yet we look at Abraham, and what does he do? He says, look, I love you and I don't wanna be separated. I don't want something to come between us. You choose where you wanna go, and I'll make sure that I stay out of your way. So what does he choose? What's interesting, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. Like what? Like the land of Egypt. Lot had Egypt in his heart. Lot wanted to go where it was like Egypt with all of its pleasures, with all its prosperity, with all of its comforts. And by outward appearance, it looks like Lot got the better deal. (laughs) But in the end, his efforts to gain the best causes him to lose everything. He loses his wife. His children are corrupted by the people of Sodom so that they become a lot like them. It's fascinating when you follow the direction of Lot's life in contradiction to, or contradistinction to that of Abram's. Lot does what? He chooses for himself where he wants to go. How does Abram decide where he goes? He said, Lord, where do you want me to go? And I would ask you, when you're trying to make decisions for your life, especially when you're younger, what am I going to go do? I'm going to college, get a career, what, you know, get married, do this Under do that. Does it occur to you that you, the safest route for you is to simply prayerfully say, God, what do you want with my life? And I'm not saying that He's going to, you know, have voices coming to you out of heaven telling you, turn left, turn right. I went through that phase in my Christian life and almost lost my mind. I'd come to a stop sign and say, okay, God, should I go this way or that way? And I'd wait there, you know. (laughs) After half a dozen lights, I finally decided I'd better go someplace. So He doesn't necessarily give you, but you know by faith that you're gonna end up where he wants you to be because he's gonna lead and direct. He's gonna open some doors, he's gonna close other doors because the hard attitude that God wants from us is simply saying, God, you're the one who has a will for my life. You're the one who has chosen me for you. Don't let me fall into the trap of trying to make my choices based upon my limited perspective. I mean, think about it. How much do you know about the future? Oh, you can tell me, well, I predict this and I predict that. I mean, watch the news channels. has got guys on there, pundits, predicting stuff 24-7. I mean, it was guaranteed that Trump was going to lose the election, remember? Some of the biggest brains with the biggest computers had it all figured out, and that was certainly a surprise. I was in a hotel in Amsterdam, woke up and went to bed that night saying, well, Hillary obviously won the election, woke up the next morning and thought I was still asleep. And everybody's, you know, on CNN, we're all crying. I thought, what's going on here? The simple fact is you and I have little ability to predict what the future is going to be. It's almost always a surprise, the unforeseen, the unexpected. We act as if, like, we actually knew it. That's why I like these economists who write books on how to avoid the next crash, where were they were before the crash, when I needed it. And they're rarely ever correct. The simple fact is we know little about the future. And God says, so you want to trust yourself to guide your life where it should be? Why not turn to the God of the universe who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was there in the beginning, who's going to be at the end, and who is drawing all human history towards his own ends and desires. Let him be the one who sets the path for your life. And when you do that, you end up like Abraham, not like Lot. Because what happens to Lot? Listen to the progression here he pitched his tent near Sodom. Even though he knew that the men of Sodom were extremely wicked and flagrantly sinning against the Lord, he pitched his tent near Sodom. And that's sometimes what we do. Well, I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to become part of it. I'm just going to live on the outskirts and, you know, just so I can control my environment because I know that's bad stuff in there. And we're not told when it happened, but you get to chapter 19. And we find out later on, Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. That means he was one of the city leaders of Sodom. Now, he's, first he lives on the outskirts of town, now he's on the city council. And they go along, he invites the angels that come to destroy the city. It says they entered into his house. He's not living in a tent, he's not, no longer a nomad, he's no longer on a journey for God. He now has settled down in Sodom and adopted their lifestyle with some reservations. You know? That's where's Wiersbe we're, we're put it really simply. He says, Lot looked towards Sodom, he moved towards Sodom, and before long he was living in Sodom. And I'm telling you, that's what happens to you and me. We, we make this decision that, well, we're not going to really, we're just going to engage the world, but we're not going to become part of the world. And over time we just get kind of sucked into the world and become like them without any distinction. I just wonder how many of us, even here tonight, are making life decisions the same way that Lot did. We look to the world around us rather than to Christ, and we, we think the world can help us. We may not live in the world, but we live near enough to it to enjoy all of its pleasures and its benefits. But one day we discover that we've become part of the very thing that we say that we hate, And oftentimes, we don't even realize the mistake we've made until our families have become consumed by it as well. You know, again, what was Abram's response? It says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes where you are and look north and east and south and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. You know what was another distinction between Abram and Lot? Lot had kids. Abram didn't. But God says to Abram, I'm going to make your kids, your family so huge, it would be like trying to count the dust. And that must have sounded like you know. I mean, sure, if if he shared that with Lot, I'm sure that, that uh, Lot would have said, "Well, that's never going to happen. I've seen you. I've seen Sarah. That chances are not good here. The math doesn't work." And yet, because Abram walked with God, God led him away from the easy life to the fields of Hebron, a much humbler place. That God promised Abram that he would have so many children that they couldn't be counted. Lot, on the other hand, lost all of his possessions. He lost his position. He lost his posterity. That his descendants that live after him become the Moabites and the Ammonites, who were the, the consequence of incest between himself and his own children. And we find that even unto the same day that Ezekiel said they nurtured an ancient hostility, a hatred for the people of God because of the blessing that rests upon them. And they hate them because God blesses them. And that blessing becomes a repudiation of their own life. So here's the the, the wrap-up. Who are you following? Here, Mark. Okay. (laughs) Here's the wrap-up who is it that you're following? Are you following Lot or are you following Abram? I was thinking about Jesus' parable of the sower. It always challenges me. And there are four different kinds of seeds. He talks about seed that falls on, uh, on, the, on the rocks and the birds snatch them away and never gets rude. And he says that's the word of God. Never has a chance to really get into people's hearts. I mean, they hear the gospel, but they never hear it. And then there's those who, he said, that fall on on ground where there's a little bit of soil and they start to sprout up, but then when hardships come, they fall away. And I think these first two describe a lot of people who have kind of glancing encounters with Christianity. They may even try it for a short time, but then they walk away when it becomes difficult and hard. The last two, he says, are seed that falls in good ground but have two completely different consequences. The, the fourth one, it's good ground that grows up and produces fruit, he said, 30, 60, 100-fold. In, in biblical times, if you got seven times an increase from the seed you planted, you had a successful harvest. 30, 60, or 100-fold was considered to be a massive windfall for any farmer. But it's that third one that I really often look at and ask myself to evaluate in my own life. Because he said, these are the ones who, they have a good root but they get choked off and they never become fruitful in their life. And I think that describes a lot of professing Christians in our world today. They, they believe in the Lord, but they're not fruitful in the Lord. In fact, he says the reasons why he says, because they get caught up in the worries of this life. In other words, my main concern is, how do I make my life successful? How do I get my best life now? That's what they're focused on. And they worry about that all the time. How am I going to make a living? How am I going to pay the bills? You know, what am I going to do when I get old? What, just how do I pay for my kid's college? And you go through all of these concerns and worries, even though God, Jesus said very clearly, I got all that. I got it. It's covered. Trust me. You don't have to worry about that. I've taken care of all of that. He says also the deceitfulness of wealth. The seefulness of wealth is interesting because what it is, it's the lie that money makes for happiness. How that lie keeps on succeeding, I don't know. Because people believe it all the time. I mean, be honest, you probably believe it. I found myself thinking it sometimes, boy, if I just had, I, I was, when I was on sabbatical, I remember sitting back saying, you know, if I just had enough money to never have to worry about money again, what would I do with my life? And I decided at the moment what I would do is, just travel the world and then i realized well, i've already kind of done that <laughs> and i kind of hate it now so but the deceitfulness of riches is somehow you can if you got enough money you can make it happen you know granted if you have a lot of money your lunches are better but the bottom line is you're not happier because if you're late, if you're eating porterhouse steak every night eventually you get tired of steak And just crave a carrot. But we fall into that deception all the time. If I just had more money, if I just was more financially secure, then I could sleep at night. And then he says even riches itself, the people who have riches are troubled and haunted by the fear that they're going to lose them. Or he says pleasures, somehow just living pleasurable life, which is really doing things that just please you. It's essentially saying always getting my own way always getting my own way. Let me tell you, if that's where you're going, don't ever get married. You know, don't ever have kids. (laughs) Because relationships are all about not getting your way. (laughs) It's about seeking to help others find their way and get what they want, to be a giver and not to be a taker. And yet many times we think, well, if I had just done this or that, then I would get my way and then life would be wonderful. And then he adds to it, finally, the desire for other things. It essentially, it's kind of a, covers everything. It's a, it's a desire for anything other than what is the main thing, wanting something more than Jesus. He says, what happens is your spiritual life becomes choked off, literally strangle, you suffocate spiritually. It's like somebody's standing on your air hose and you can't breathe anymore. And because of that, he says, you become unfruitful or as, as Luke states, he says, you become immature in your faith. You never grow up to be who Jesus meant for you to be because you're stuck in this place of worries and cares and affairs and deceitful and and the pursuit of pleasures and other things that creep in. That's all I have to say about that. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us to hear your heart in all of this, Lord. I don't want it to just be kind of a harangue coming from me, but... I want it to be something that really is a a conviction that you put in our heart by your Holy Spirit that I know there are people who in this room right now who are conflicted, some who are listening on, on the web, Lord, who are conflicted in their life because life is not falling together the way they had planned or imagined or dreamed or have worked so hard to make it that way. And I pray, God, that we could just step back and realize there's a reason for this season that they're in right now and they need to seek you for that reason, that it may be, God, that you just want us to go back to the beginning, to go back and and rebuild that altar that's fallen down and begin to worship you and to make you the main thing in our life, God. I pray that we could all do that, Lord. We're all, we all struggle with spiritual slippage from season to season in our life. Help us, Lord, to shore up those things, or as Paul said, or Jesus, John said in the Revelation, to, to strengthen the things which remain that we might begin to enjoy walking with God again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.